faith family. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt small? Has there ever been a moment in your life in which you just felt small? Maybe it's standing at the foot of a mountain. Or maybe it's looking out an airplane window. Or maybe it's when you stare up into a starry sky and you realize, I am so small. Well, that in many ways is how I feel right now as we are about to take a good, long, hard look at the cross. As we look at what Jesus has done for us in the cross, there's a sense in which there is no swagger before the cross. There is no boasting. There is no peacocking. There is no look at the name on the back of the jersey when you stand before a blood-stained cross. The cross, a significant symbol in our life and culture, We have it on t-shirts. Many of you have tattoos of crosses. We have a cross on top of our church. Many of you have jewelry. We have it on tombstones. It's, It's a symbol that we see throughout our culture. But the question is, do we really know what it is? Do we really know what it has accomplished? A little while back, I was at the mall and I was sharing the gospel with people and I saw this big group of teenagers. They look like a bunch of thugs and I thought, there they are right there. That's who I want to go talk to. And as they came swaggering up and you know, walking, I said, hey guys, I just want to ask you a question. And there's a guy with a big gold chain and a plated cross with diamonds in it. And I said, hey bro, um, man, what, what's that cross? What, tell me about that. And he says, oh, I just thought it looked cool. I was like, oh, okay. And, and I said, man, well, did you know that the cross is an instrument of torture? His eyes got really big, like, oh my goodness gracious. And I said, man, do you know someone famous who died on that cross? And he went, Jesus? I was like, yes, that's exactly right. And I said, man, let me ask you this. Do you know why he died on the cross? And he said, no. And I said, well, do you mind if I share that with you? And he said, sure. It led to a great gospel conversation. We have cross symbols all throughout our cultures, jewelry as tombstones and t-shirts and all over the place, but do we really know what it is? That the cross is a means through which torture and murder and execution would take place. It would be kind of like rallying and celebrating and wearing jewelry of an electric chair or of a noose that we're celebrating, we're glorying in a device of torture. You see, the cross is where God's love, God's wrath, God's mercy, God's justice, God's holiness, God's promises, God's faithfulness, God's truth, God's grace, and God's glory all meet together. This morning, I couldn't sleep well. I woke up early, and there was this truth I was just wrestling through, and it's this. The cross is where both Satan and God got what they wanted. The cross is where Satan thought, I killed him. I took down Jesus, and God is like, that's exactly right, you did. You see, the cross was God's plan before the foundations of the earth had ever been laid. In the mind of God, his plan was set in eternity past as the means of receiving the greatest glory. And he redeems rebels. He turns enemies into friends by means of the death of his son. 
We see this plan already on the forefront of God's mind from the very beginning. When sin entered in through the world through our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden. Once they sinned, God brought judgment. And in Genesis 3.15, we have what's called the Proto-Evangelon, the first gospel message. And it is there in Genesis 3.15, the Lord told the serpent, he told Satan, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God is already laying out the game plan for how he would reverse the curse of what's happening in Genesis 3. That there would be a seed of the woman, a man who would come and crush the head of the serpents. Well, what God has promised has come to pass. Jesus, the seed of the woman, has crushed the head of the serpent. He has come to destroy Satan through the cross. And Jesus permits it. He allows it. The one who is sovereign, the one who is good that we just sang about. He is the one who permits Satan to strike him on the heel through the cross. And yet it is through the striking of his heel. It is through the bruising of Jesus' heel that would be the means through which Satan's head would be crushed. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the events leading up to this moment of the death of Jesus. Well, this morning, we are going to look at the actual crucifixion event and what this means for us. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 15. We're not starting Luke yet. We'll get there in a couple decades. Mark chapter 15, if you could turn there with me. This is sermon number 56 uh, of going through the gospel of Mark. And it's a sermon series on the move. We've over 40, I think it's like 42 times the word immediately shows up in the gospel of Mark. It's fast paced. He's, he's driving home a point. He goes from one event of Jesus to another to another. It's a fast paced, hard hitting gospel. And we're going to focus primarily in verses 24 through about 42. But to kind of set the stage, to get all of us caught up, what I'd like for us to do is I'd like to read beginning with verse 1. Now, this is not going to be on the screen until we get to verse 24. But let's look together in Mark 15, beginning with verse 1, to help set the stage of the cross. The scripture says this in Mark 15, beginning with verse 1. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priest tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer, and so Pilate was amazed." At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowds so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. 
Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in, purple, in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick, spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the palace called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that even we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon... Darkness covered over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem." What we have seen in the text is we have reached the end of Jesus' life in ministry is he is now fulfilling what was planned in the mind of God from eternity past. He is going to the cross to suffer and die for the sins of the world. This morning, I want you to notice what's happening in the text and what this means for us. I want you to see first the culmination of Old Testament prophecies. The culmination of Old Testament prophecies. These events taking place in Mark 15, these are not just random events that happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago on Friday. No, these actions happening to him were prophesied, they were foretold hundreds of years in advance. I put in your notes seven Old Testament prophecies that are realized in the death of Jesus. Now make no mistake, there are many, many more. One scholar did the math and he found 456 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled every single one. Now, for the sake of our time together, we're not going to look at all 456. Be encouraged. I want you to get to lunch on time. 
But for our time, I do want to show you seven Old Testament prophecies that are just right here in the text. I want you to see right here the first one. It's the crucifixion. The crucifixion. Notice that little detail is given regarding the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, in all four Gospels, we get very little information as to what crucifixion actually entailed. And yet, we must remember, many of Mark's readers of his original audience, they had probably seen crucifixion before. The Roman audience was familiar with this horrific practice of crucifixion. Here's what we do know. Crucifixion was a torture device designed to squeeze as much suffering as possible leading up to the death of a criminal. The crucifixion typically entailed nailing someone to a wooden cross with three nails. One for each wrist and one for the legs put between. Typically, if they were nailed in the palms of their hands, the weight of their bodies would rip their hands. Therefore, they would typically put the nail inside the wrist where it would rest upon the bone. Now, a crucifixion would be one in which the the criminal would be holding their weight on their hands up like this. Typically, a wooden block was put on the cross for them to push up to catch a breath and go back down. Over and over and over again. Typically, the person would die from asphyxiation. Over and over and over again, they would push off with their heels to catch a breath, and then they'd be so exhausted and hang back down. It's interesting. They would often look at the heels of the criminals, and there would be bruises. Sounds like Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? He's going to bruise your heel. He's going to crush your head. Oftentimes, if the Romans wanted to hurry up the process and get this over with, they would break the legs of those being crucified. We see that happening in John chapter 19, where the criminals on each side of Jesus have their legs broken. Why? Because they're no longer able to push up with their legs to catch a breath. They then die because they can't breathe. But when they get to Jesus, they don't break his legs because he was already dead, which is fulfillment of Psalm 22, which says that no, uh, none of his bones would be broken. You see, even in the crucifixion of Jesus, we see where God is calling his shot. He's saying this is how the Messiah is going to die. And he does so all the way back in Psalm 22. Now keep in mind, King David wrote Psalm 22 six hundred years before crucifixion was ever invented. In the mind of God, he knows exactly what's going to happen. That indeed the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and in his feet. And we see it realized and fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. The second thing we see is the gambling for Jesus's clothes. In verse 24, the soldiers divide up Jesus's clothes and they're gambling to see who gets to keep what. Well, this is fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18, which says they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Thirdly, we see Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Verse 27, we see one on his right and one on his left. Well, Isaiah 53, verse 12 says he was counted among the rebels. Fourthly, we see that he was insulted by the people. 
In verses 29 through 32, it tells us how people pass by and they're yelling insults at Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes, they're mocking him. Even the two criminals next to him are taunting him. Well, this is fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 7. It says, everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. Little did these priests and scribes and travelers know that they were fulfilling what King David said would happen hundreds of years earlier. And yet, talk about kicking a man while he's down. Here is Jesus gasping for air. And seeing Jesus suffer and die is not enough. They're wagging their heads in his face. They're mocking him in his pain. And yet, that is you and me also. Before we know Christ, it is us who are mocking Jesus. It is us who are taunting Jesus. We are the ones who are responsible for the death of Jesus because of our sin. I love the great hymn of the faith that says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And Jesus could have called upon thousands of angels to come to his rescue. Jesus could have called upon thousands upon thousands of angels to come and get him off that cross and say, see, I really am who I said I was. And yet he doesn't. Because if Jesus had fought back in the flesh, if Jesus had gotten off the cross, you and I are still headed for hell. Yet Jesus was faithful to the end. And there he is suffering and dying on our behalf. As he is being mocked and made fun of, aren't you glad he didn't fight back? Aren't you glad he entrusted himself to the Lord? Here is Jesus taking all of this vitriol from those who seek his death. Fifthly, we see darkness falling upon the land. Do you remember the ninth plague in Egypt? In Exodus chapter 10, while the people of Israel are still in Egypt, Exodus 10 tells us that there were nine days of darkness in the ninth plague, followed by the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. Well, in Mark 15, we see three hours of darkness that is followed by the death of the firstborn over all of creation. You see, darkness was a sign of God's judgment, that God was judging sin. And since sin is now falling upon Jesus, darkness is covering the area. Darkness is falling upon the people. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 21, that God made him who knew no sin become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That on the cross, all of the sin that you and I have committed is placed upon the person of Jesus. He is indeed absorbing the full wrath of God towards our sin on our behalf so that we don't have to. Oh, you are so loved by God that his grace and kindness, he is pouring out his mercy upon you, that he is taking all that you deserved at the cross. And the judgment of God is upon Jesus. Darkness is covering the land. 
And just as darkness covered the land in Egypt, it's falling all over Calvary where the judgment of God is now coming upon the Lamb of God who's taking away the sins of the world. Sixthly, we see his cry of abandonment. In his final moments, Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as Jesus is crying out these words, the listeners who were Jewish would have said, that's Psalm 22, which is a psalm specifically about the death of the Messiah. Here is Jesus saying, God, where have you gone? God, why am I all alone? Think about this. From all of eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have always existed in perfect relationship and community, perfect harmony and oneness within the Godhead, perfect love within the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And now for the very first time ever, Jesus is abandoned. The Father is turning his back on the Son. Jesus is all alone for the very first time. But you see, Jesus was forsaken and abandoned by God at the cross. Why? So that in him, you will never be forsaken or abandoned by God. That come cancer or a pink slip or death, you will never be abandoned by God. Because Jesus was left all alone, you never will be. You don't have to fear being alone because if you believe the gospel, you will have Jesus with you forever. You may feel lonely, but you're never alone. The Lord will be with you. The promise he makes all throughout the scriptures for all who trust and follow in him. Indeed, in the Great Commission, what did Jesus say at the very end? I will be with you even to the end of the age. You do not need to worry about dying alone. You'll never be alone when you believe the gospel. All because Jesus was left alone. He was abandoned by God at the cross so that you won't be. That God will not leave you to yourself. What did Jesus say to his disciples? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'm going to come back for you. You're my people. And I'm a God who makes a promise. And when I make a promise, I keep it. And indeed, you are never alone. All because Christ was willing to be left alone by the Godhead at the cross. We see not only the cry of abandonment, but seventhly, the sour wine on a hyssop branch. Look at verse 36. We see one of the soldiers runs fills a sponge with sour wine. It's a type of a vinegar drink. They put the sponge on a stick and they offer it to Jesus. Well, in John's gospel, he doesn't just call it a stick. He calls it a hyssop branch. Well, what's, what's the big deal about that? Well, do you remember when the Passover took place in Egypt? God commanded that the blood of a lamb be put on the doorposts. Well, do you remember specifically what God told them to use to put the blood on the doorposts? A hyssop branch. They were to take the hyssop branch, dip it in the blood of a lamb, put it on their doorposts, and the death angel passes over. 
Well, here is the Lamb of God on the cross, and he is being painted with a hyssop branch. What we see is that Jesus is the one who is not only providing forgiveness, but also freedom from death. Just as the death angel passed over all who had the mark of the blood of the lamb upon them, when you trust in Jesus by faith, death, eternal death in hell passes over you. It no longer applies to you, but indeed you are forgiven of all of your sin. You see, hyssop is symbolic in the Old Testament of being cleansed from sin. Do you remember when David committed adultery with Bathsheba? He He was uh, confronted by the prophet Nathan and said, you are the man, you are the one who has sinned. And in Psalm 51, David records his prayer of repentance. It's his confession of crying out to God and he's just broken over his sin. And in Psalm 51, verse seven, he prays, Lord, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. You see, the deepest need of every human being is complete, total, absolute forgiveness of sin from God. Well, that is what is being applied here to Jesus. That it is through the blood of Jesus on the cross that you are completely forgiven. You're washed You're made clean by the blood of the lamb. That God cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And you'll be thinking, but man, I've got so many sins in my life. Kenneth, you have no idea how broken and messed up and selfish I am. No, I don't, but God does. And he says, look to my son and I'm going to wash you and make you clean. Look unto Jesus today and be forgiven of all of your sin. To be washed and have a fresh start. This is what God offers you in the gospel. Is that through the blood of Jesus, you can be forgiven. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's a free gift. That's why it's called grace. You just receive it. And you receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And it compels you in worship to say thank you for this marvelous gift. This is what God has offered you in Jesus. That a hyssop branch applied to the doors in Egypt representing the blood of the lamb, is now being applied to Jesus, that it's through the cross of Jesus you can be forgiven. Oh, what a savior. What a king. What a God who loves you and cares for you and has made a way for you to be made clean. What we see happening here in the text are Old Testament prophecies that find their culmination. They find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus at the cross. The second big truth I want you to see here in the text is the admission we have into God's presence. The admission We have the culmination of Old Testament prophecy. Now we have the admission into God's presence. Now the temple in Jerusalem was the place where animal sacrifices were made in accordance with the law of Moses. Inside the temple hung a curtain, a veil that separated the central room inside the temple called the Holy of Holies. God's 
presence would dwell there in the Holy of Holies. But the veil signified how man was separated from God's presence because of sin. Now, one time a year, one man, a high priest, could go behind the veil. And he would go and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. The mercy seat is where the angels' wings would come together on the Ark of the Covenant, this golden box. And he would make atonement for his sin as he would sprinkle the blood. And he would make atonement for the sins of Israel. Well, what happens at the cross of Christ? When Jesus dies on the cross, we see the curtain tear. The death of Jesus and the tearing of the curtain, they happen simultaneously. You see it there in verses 37 and 38, that they happen in unison, which points to the reality that Jesus' death gives followers of Jesus access into the Holy of Holies. You now have access into the very presence of God anytime, anywhere. It's open to the whole world. It's not just for one man, one time a year, who happens to be the high priest. No, now you have access into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God through the great high priest, King Jesus, who through his death has had the veil torn in two. That's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews uh, 10. He says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. Through the death of Jesus on the cross, you can come to God. You, you can come boldly into his presence. You can seek his face all because of what God has done for you in the cross. We see the image here of Jesus' flesh being ripped apart. Well, it's pointing also simultaneously to the veil that separated God and man is now being ripped apart. Now you have access to God through Christ. You see, Jesus is the true and greater temple. Jesus is the true and greater curtain that is through him you have access to God. Jesus is the great high priest. He is the perfect unblemished sacrifice. And it is his blood that gives complete and total forgiveness and atonement for sin. You see, Jesus is the only way to God because he is God. Confucius cannot save you. Joseph Smith cannot save you. Mohammed cannot save you. Money and power cannot save you. Your good works cannot save you. Your grandmama's faith, it cannot save you. You must be born again. You must believe the gospel where you turn from your sin and trust in Christ. You believe that what he did on the cross was not just some religious act, but it was done by you and it was done for you. That God has made a way for you to be restored into a right relationship with himself through the death of his son. And the only way you can get to God is through Jesus. That's what he said. In John 14, chapter, John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
Jesus is your only way that you can get to God. And the good news is, is that you don't have to work to get to him. He's already come for you. He has pursued you. He has come after you. And he has done so through the cross. This is what God is doing. He's coming after you. Well, Kenneth, what more could you say about this? I could go all day, y'all. I'm sorry, I'm a little excited about this. Do you see who's doing the tearing here? Look at verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, watch this, from top to bottom. If man had torn it, it would have been from the bottom to the top. And what man is strong enough to tear a curtain four inches thick, four inches thick, uh, 60 feet high. This is just an incredible work, but it goes from top to bottom, meaning it is the Lord God Almighty, the most high God who is ripping it from the top, saying, I want you to know that I'm doing the work. I'm the one who's coming after you. I'm the one who's inviting you into my presence. I am the one who is making a way for you to come into a right relationship with me. God does the pursuing. God is coming after you. It's kind of like a a Luke 15 moment where the prodigal son is lost. He's going his own way, selfish and prideful. And he finds that life is miserable apart from his father. And then he comes around the bend and the father sees him and runs. God pursues. God has come after you. If you are a follower of Jesus, it's because God sought you first. He came after you with reckless abandon and he loves you with so much passion. He crushes his son so that he doesn't have to crush you. And he makes a way through the breaking, through the tearing of a curtain. So now you can come straight to him. You don't need a a human priest to make a way. You come through Jesus, the great high priest, who has made a way through his death on the cross. Writer of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews 4.16. He says, let us approach the throne of grace with, I love this, boldness. So that we may receive mercy and find uh, grace to help us in our time of need. You can come boldly into the presence of God. I want you to know, I take great delight in praying over you and praying for you. When I come to special events and Every time at Thanksgiving, I'm always asked to pray, happy to do so. But I want you to know a seven-year-old who's put their faith in Jesus has just as much access to to the throne as I do. All who call upon the name of the Lord, guess what? You're saved. You have access. You have privilege with the Father. And I think it was Tim Keller who said this, and I'm gonna botch it, but it's so rich, in which he said, If you wake up any earthly king from his sleep, it will not go well for you. But we have access to a king who's awake all night and ready to listen to you. The king of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who looks over all of creation and says, mine, loves to hear you seek him in prayer. You have access to him. Go boldly to him through Jesus The reason we pray in Jesus' name is because we're not coming in our power. We're not coming in our strength or in our worth. We're coming through the worth and the work of Jesus on our behalf through the cross. And so we pray in Jesus' name because, Lord, it's only by him, for him, and through him we can come into your presence. But because he's come for me, I'm now boldly coming to you. 
and I'm coming straight into your presence through my great high priest, King Jesus. It's amazing what we see happening all throughout the cross. Not only what happened, but what was accomplished through this great work. You have access to the King of Kings. I want you to see thirdly, the inclusion of women to follow Jesus. Standing at a distance, we see here in the text, verses 40 and 41, Mary, Mary, and Salome. Sounds like a great 70s rock band. In a culture that had little worth for women, in a culture that had women as property, Jesus sees women as having value. Image bearers. Those who are invited to come and follow after him. Isn't it interesting that it's often the outcasts, those who are neglected by, the, by society that love Jesus the most, that stay with him most closely, that, that treasure him as just this precious jewel. He's the pearl of great price. He is the one that they desire. It's those who are on the outside of culture, those on the outside of society, those who don't have legitimate standing that hold Jesus tighter. There's a lesson in that for us, faith family, that we're not seeking to win the biggest and the largest and the greatest. Jesus draws and attracts those who don't have any political capital at all. And he welcomes those who are broken. He welcomes the poor. He welcomes the sick. He welcomes those who realize their true state before him. And we we have access to him, broken. And here are these women who now are being applauded. I'm gonna show you again here in the text just how the Lord uses these women. And here they are standing, watching from a distance. The disciples have already fled. Jesus' best friends have already abandoned him. They've gone into hiding. But here it is, these women who would be the last to stand at the cross on Good Friday. And as we're going to see in a few weeks, Lord willing, if we can get there, they're the first to arrive at the empty tomb. Women are co-heirs with Christ. Daughters of the King, loved by God, equal access to the Father through Jesus the Son. Fourthly and finally, I want you to see the conversion of the soldier. The centurion was responsible for the oversight of the execution of Jesus. Now he has seen everything take place that day. The darkness, the earthquake, the mockers, Jesus crying out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He has seen it all that day. And all these things are so overwhelming to him. He realizes in this moment, he is staring at at the crucified Jesus. He cries out, truly, this man was the son of God. If you want to know why Jesus died, this is it. This right here. The centurion has done his job and he realizes this was no ordinary man. This is the God man. This is the son of God who has been crucified by me. I'm responsible for the death of Jesus. Several years ago, the movie The Passion of the Christ came out and it led to a big debate over who was responsible for the death of Jesus. Was it the Jews 
Was it the Romans? It's all of us. It was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. We are responsible for the death of Jesus. And my sin, not in part, but the whole. And your sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to Jesus. He took the nails. He took the separation from the Father. Jesus is the one who endured all of this for us. To continue that great hymn of the faith, it was my sin that nailed him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Do you want to know how much God loves you? Look at the cross. Where God goes on record to show you how much he loves you. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that is who you are to Jesus. He gave his life for you. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God displays that even when you and I were living in sin and headed for hell and shaking our fist in his face and using his name as a curse word and going after all the things of this world, you were still loved. And Jesus still loved you enough to die for you. That if you turn from your sin and trust in him by faith, you receive Christ by faith, God will receive you. He will wash you. He will forgive you. He will adopt you. He will protect you. He will be with you. And he promises, I will be your God and you will be my people forever and ever and ever. In fact, that's the impact point today. The one thing I'm calling all of us to do, believe in your heart and declare with your lips, Jesus is the son of God. This centurion is modeling for us what Jesus came to do. And it's to take broken people who have sinned against him, who are responsible for nailing him to the cross. And we see him for who he is. And we surrender our hearts and lives and we believe, we trust in him. Jesus says, this is the work that the father is after, that you believe upon his one and only son. Kenneth, what do I have to do to be saved? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just a mental acknowledgement, not just saying, hey, I think that's true, but it's a complete surrender of your heart, your will, your mind, your life. You're banking all that you have and all that you are on the person and work of Jesus. Have you done that? Your eternity hangs in the balance. Where you will be 5,000 years from now and 5 billion years from now depends upon this right here. Have you believed the gospel? And if you have not trusted in Christ, then today turn from your sin and trust in him. Receive him by faith. Trust in Christ and you will be saved. And you'll know that you're starting to understand just a little bit of the gospel is when you look at the cross and you feel small. All of us are small. All of us are beginners at the foot of a bloodstained cross.